Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. So we've started our All One series. We started last week, uh, and uh, we're continuing that for a few weeks. We've got Steve and Lynn here today. I'm going to introduce those guys in a minute. But um, as well as these morning sessions, we have the evening sessions as well. Uh, we'll have an evening session here tonight at 6.30. It's a chance for you to bring your discussion, your questions, your reflections. Steve has said to me, the more questions, the better. Okay, you can inundate him with questions. They, and Lynn, they just love being questioned. So the more questions, the better. If you can't come tonight... Uh, and you'd like to still put a question in, we've got a Zoom link, which you can connect with as we did last week. We'll, we'll have a Zoom link. And if you send your question, email it to Keely by 4 o'clock. We'll try and include that question in the evening session. So that Zoom link will have gone out to you via your email. Okay, you'll have received that. Again, if you haven't received it, make sure you're on our database. We can get information out to you. Also, we're hosting our evening sessions in a password-protected place on our website for some of the people who can't get to see them in, in the live. So... Again, there's an email that's gone out with a password which enables you to connect with those, uh, those privately uh, posted YouTube videos for our evening sessions. The reason we privately post them is because we, we class those as kind of family business, really, so we don't put them on our normal feed, but you can get to them through our website and through the link that's been sent out to you via Church Suite. So we welcome Stephen Lynn. Why give me a big round of applause on the front row here? <clears throat> Known these guys for a few years now, not a huge amount of time, but we get on like a house on fire. He's, they've both got a wicked sense of humour, which is great. Um, Steve is speaking this morning, and Steve and Lynn are both going to be around for our evening session tonight. Uh, they're both very, very bright PhD theology people. And, um, I mean, they yeah, really, really do um, know, know the scriptures very, very well and study them intently. And so um, I'm going to invite Steve. Can I invite you up? I need to get your book, so I'm going to do a shameless plug, don't I? Shameless as you like, Simon. Yeah. Shameless as you like. Steve has written this fantastic book called How to Read the Bible Well. Um, this is one of the best books I've read on how to approach the Bible and get the most out of the Bible. The Bible can be a confusing book in many ways. But it's actually a confusing collection of books written over many thousand years. And what Steve does in this book, it helps you approach the Bible and basically get the most out of the Bible. So I can't recommend this highly enough. Um, why did you write this then? Well, I think for us as evangelical Christians in particular, the Bible is so central to our faith and how we think about things, and we speak of it as the Word of God, which we mean to be a very honouring phrase. But for most of us, most of the time, we're not entirely sure exactly what that means. It implies the words of God, and therefore authoritative, but we also know that it came through people. So how do we, how do we weigh up those, those two elements? So this... Who's it for, the, the Steve? Who, who should read this? Academics? Um, no, not at all. No. Not at, no. I mean, it's written for, if I could put it this way, ordinary Christians who love the Bible, uh, want to understand it better. Because the, the key thing, I think, is for us to understand the nature of the Bible. What do we mean by it as the Word of God? And then we can think about interpreting it and applying it, and then it can be authoritative in our lives. Thank you. Well, this is a fantastic book. It's a great read. 
I recommend it to anybody um, who enjoys reading their Bible to get hold of this. We've got some copies out in the cafe for sale yep, today yeah, at reduced price. The coffee, the cafe, yes. So Steve will be out yes. there after the service. If you want to grab a book off him, you can and have a chat to him, ask him any questions. Uh, it's a great. It's not particularly focused on the topic we're looking at. It's not focused on same-sex relationships per se, but it will give you a, a great framework to approach the Bible holistically and I think intelligently. So it's, it's a great, great read. I do need to mention before I put you on, I've forgotten on your wood. I've did a little post on here. Look, oh. the cafe is closed. So that look. So our cafe is closed from Wednesday because our refurbishment works are going to continue into that next phase. I'm sorry to say the cafe will be closed for about a month to the public. If you've got an event in the cafe, if you normally have a group or something within Riverside, that will continue. You just liaise with, with, with Jackie about that. But in terms of cafe uh, in the week, the cafe will be closed for about a month while they replace the lower lounge liner, strip out all the toilets and refurbish them where they were affected by the flood water. Uh, that's our last major push, really, for the, for the finishing of this restoration works. Um, it will be open on a Sunday, though, yeah? It will still be open on a Sunday. So, so basically, yeah, I know that'll be a bit tough for you if you come to the cafe on a regular basis, but we hope to get through that as quickly as we can, and closing it and doing it quickly is the best way to do it rather than trying to do it piecemeal and keep the cafe open. Is that okay? I think I've covered everything. Have I covered everything? Thumbs up from Keeley. So um, I'm going to move off and uh, let you go on. Thank you so much. You know, I don't think I've ever been watched by one of the senior pastors. <laughs> oh, and there she is, yes, yes. So give me, yeah, and let me know how I'm getting on, would you? Yes, marvellous. Yeah, okay, it's iffy so far, yeah, yeah, marvellous. So thank you, Simon. So Simon and Keely have asked me to speak this week and next week, two parts, on a very important subject, which of course is same-sex relationships. It's obviously a a very important subject for the 3% or so of people who identify as gay. It's also important to their friends and families. But increasingly, it's important for the population as a whole. 30 years ago, two-thirds of people thought that same-sex relationships were always wrong. 30 years later, it's fewer than one in six. And among people of no religion, it's fewer than one in ten. So it's getting on for zero. Even among people who identify as Church of England, the numbers are not dissimilar. Which is really quite remarkable, isn't it? When you think that the church has historically been very against gay relationships, based on its traditional understanding of what the Bible says. So what are we as evangelical Christians who hold the Bible in the highest regard and are also very concerned for mission, what are we to make of all of this? Now, of course, we can just circle the wagons and draw lines in the sand and say that they're all wrong and that we are the ones defending biblical truth. We can comfort ourselves that Jesus said we would be persecuted and ridiculed for righteousness' sake. But it's not quite as simple as that, because if we're saying that God is against same-sex relationships because the Bible says so, when virtually all of our unchurched audience think that that is ridiculous, we're going to have a bit of a problem convincing them to take seriously anything else that the Bible says, including what it says about the gospel. 
So we'd better be sure that we're right, haven't we? We'd better be sure that this particular truth is worth it, that it is so important to God that it actually doesn't matter how many people may be put off Christianity and not come into a relationship with Jesus because of it. In other words, we'd better be really sure that we know how God feels about this subject. Because it's no longer just about the 3%, although they are important enough. It's also now about the 97%. I remember a pastor saying to me once, it's never been a problem in our church. We never get any gay people coming along. But that in itself is a problem. Gay people don't come because they're not stupid. Gay people know that in most evangelical churches, they're really not welcome. Even among churches who say that they're welcome, there's often an unspoken subtext, which is an agenda to get gay people to change and see the error of their ways. Now, you need to know that evangelical leaders who are troubled by all of this, who are concerned that something just doesn't feel quite right about the church's traditional position, have to navigate a cultural minefield. So it takes a lot of courage. They will be persona non grata at most evangelical events. The speaking invitations and the lunch invitations will dry up. There will be Chinese whispers about them being a liberal, which is just about the worst insult in evangelicalism. Because it implies that they're abandoning a whole host of core Christian doctrines, like the deity of Jesus, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, and the authority of the Bible. Or at least they soon will be because they've started out on this slippery slope. But you know, the reality is that this conversation is not about being liberal or conservative. It's not about picking and choosing the bits of the Bible that we agree with and don't agree with. It's not about saying that the Bible is out of date. It's not about giving in to the spirit of the age. And it's not about abandoning traditional core beliefs to be trendy or popular or even just loving. It's actually about following and applying classic principles of evangelical biblical interpretation to their logical conclusion on this subject, which of course should be our approach to all subjects. Now, of course, tradition needs to be respected. The creeds of the early church are a great example of that. But sometimes tradition needs to be questioned as well. I mean, otherwise we would never have had the Reformation. And the Reformers used scripture to critique tradition. And they also said that should be a continuous, ongoing process. And if we're really honest with ourselves... Christian tradition doesn't always have a great track record. It had no problem with slavery for 1,800 years because of what the Bible said. It had no problem with denying the vote to women for over 1,900 years until 1928 
treating them as second-class citizens because of what the Bible said. And many traditionalists are still fighting that battle, saying that women can't be leaders or elders or teach the Bible. Unless, of course, it's teaching children. (laughs) Or doing dangerous missionary work overseas. That men, for some reason, don't want to do. Then, apparently, it's okay. Then we can ignore what the Bible says. And to the point today, Christian tradition had no problem with people being put in jail for homosexuality, which is what used to happen until 1967. Until Victorian times, people were hanged for being homosexual. Here's a newspaper report on the screen from 1835. And the conviction in this case was for committing what was called an unnatural crime. We'll come back to natural and unnatural when we look at what Paul had to say about that in Romans 1 next week. Even when homosexuality was decriminalised, the peer who introduced it said this, This is no occasion for jubilation, certainly not for celebration. Homosexuals must continue to remember that while there may be nothing bad in being a homosexual, there is certainly nothing good. No amount of legislation will prevent homosexuals from being the subject of dislike and derision, or at best of pity. We shall always, I fear, resent the odd man out. That is their burden for all time. As recently as 1965, in a national opinion poll, 93% of people thought homosexuals were in need of medical or psychiatric treatment. All of this was happening in my lifetime. Not the Victorian bit, obviously. (laughs) I'm I'm not quite that old. But more importantly, within the lifetime of many of today's national evangelical leaders, and certainly their parents and their mentors, who grew up with the traditional conservative evangelical view of homosexuals, which came from a combination of the Bible says and what was seen as obvious within the culture. The fact is, folks, that for hundreds of years, the law of the land had done our thinking for us. Society agreed with the church, and the church agreed with society. And because homosexuals were only 3 to 5% or so of the population, statistically insignificant, there was no reason to have to think about it. But now, of course, that's all changed, hasn't it? Now, as we saw at the beginning, statistically, it is significant. So now, even evangelical Christians need to take note and take this seriously and think it through. Because even people of no faith believe that this subject is all to do with love and kindness and fairness and equality. Ironically, without framing it that way, the population is saying that this is all about Christian values. I don't know if you know this, but in schools now for many years, kids are taught that being anti-gay is the exact same category as racism and sexism. So now, as Christians, all of us have to take an interest in how to understand 
the Bible on this subject. We can't just throw out a few verses as the Bible says and expect the world out there to just accept that. So we can't avoid biblical interpretation. And for some of us, that will feel a bit uncomfortable. Because when we read the Bible, we don't actually think we're interpreting it at all. And we worry that interpretation is just a euphemism for clever people to twist what it says and make it say something that it doesn't. But on something that's as important as this, we need to be as sure as we can be that we are reading the Bible well. Because only when we're reading it well is the Bible speaking with authority. The London School of Theology that Lynn and I both studied at is about as evangelical as you can get. And this is from their statement of faith. We believe that the Old and New Testament scriptures are God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, since their writers spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Hence, the scriptures are fully trustworthy in all that they affirm. So that is our first interest. What exactly are the scriptures affirming on this subject? As the written word of God, there are supreme authority for faith and conduct. But it continues. We acknowledge the need for those scriptures to be rightly interpreted under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, using the gifts of understanding and scholarship that God has given to his people. And that's because it's only when the Bible is being rightly interpreted, using those gifts, that it's speaking with authority. Now I know that that may feel like it goes against one of the core values of the Reformation, which is that anyone without specialist training can just pick up the Bible and read it and understand it. That's the so-called perspicuity of Scripture. But the Reformers never said that that was true for everything in the Bible, on all subjects. In fact, they only said that about the basics of salvation. So, what are the basic principles, some of the basic principles of biblical interpretation that will help us to know what the scriptures are affirming, as LST puts it? Number one, context, context, context is to biblical interpretation what location, location, location is to property. Easy to remember. About the worst mistake that we can make is to ignore the context of a verse or take it out of its context. And the context includes uh, not just the text itself, not just a word in a verse, in a chapter, in a book, and so on, but also the world of the text, the culture, the worldview, the political background, the economic background, Everything that the biblical writers did and didn't know about the world they lived in. Biology, cosmology, science, and so on. Everything, in fact, about how they saw the way things were in their world. Number two. What a verse or passage means is always what it would have meant to its original author and audience. In other words... 
what they would have thought it was talking about. Because a Bible verse is never talking now about something that it wasn't talking about at the time. Everything the biblical authors wrote reflected what they knew, or thought that they knew, of the world they lived in, and what was obvious to them about their cultural context. And number three, when we know that, then we can form a view on whether what it said then is saying the same thing timelessly to us now, or whether it was speaking in a time-bound way for their place and time. We always have to remember that these biblical authors were not writing theology textbooks for 21st century Christians. We are, in the first instance, eavesdroppers on their conversations. It was speaking to their audience about something way before it was ever speaking to us about something. With the help of the Holy Spirit, it's our job to bring together their horizon as writers and our horizon as readers. Firstly, to see what it was saying then, and secondly, to see how that relates to now. And that's because God is not asking us to live biblically by copying everything that they said and did in their world. He's asking us to live Christianly in our world, in which the Bible is not an instruction manual, it's a conversation partner. So we can't just copy their homework, as it were. We can't just copy and paste stuff from then to now as if there were no gap between the two. Especially if the questions that the Bible was answering for them are not the same questions that we are asking. So let me give you an example of that. Let's take what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. Women should be silent in the churches, or even on Zoom. (laughs) For they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. We can clearly see here what the Bible says. But is that the same thing as what the Bible clearly teaches? Is this timeless truth? Well, certainly for thousands of years, people believed that it was. But in reality, this was speaking into Paul's world, reflecting the cultural assumptions of Paul and his audience about the way things are and the way things should be what propriety and decorum looked like. But actually, it wasn't just cultural, because at the time, women were believed to be physically, mentally, and emotionally inferior to men. So their place in life was to serve men. The Greek philosopher Aristotle famously said, or maybe it's infamously said, woman is a misbegotten or defective version of a man. Here he is with his mate Plato, and he explained it like this, pay close attention. The active force in the male seed tends to the production of a perfect likeness in the masculine sex, while the production of, a, of women, woman comes from defect in the active force or from some material indisposition 
or even from some external influence such as that of a south wind which is moist. If you're here today and you're trying to get pregnant and you're hoping for a boy, watch out for that south wind. For good order would have been found wanting in the human family if some were not governed by others wiser than themselves. So by such a kind of subjection, woman is naturally subject to man. If I hear an amen to that, someone will be asked to leave the auditorium. This way of thinking about what was natural and obvious basically reigned in society for thousands of years right up to the 20th century. And many conservative Christians still think that this is reflecting timeless truth because they fail to take account of context, context, context in their way of reading the Bible. You see, the thing is that however much we may want to be biblical, we cannot just read the Bible without, at the same time, interpreting the Bible. We cannot ignore interpretation. Otherwise, what we'll be taking away is what the Bible says, but not what the Bible is saying. Okay, so with all that in mind, let's do what Mary Poppins would do and start at the very beginning, because it's a very good place to start, and she is practically perfect in every way. (laughs) So as you know, the very beginning in Bible terms is Genesis. And traditionalists say that Genesis was a blueprint for human sexual relationships. But the story of Adam and Eve is saying nothing about same-sex relationships for or against. The reason that it pictures a, a man and a woman is, number one, because that is what's true for most people most of the time. Always has been and always will be. Number two, it's where babies come from. It's obviously the norm for the majority of people. But that doesn't make it normative for all people. Otherwise, single people are abnormal and need to change. Turning Adam and Eve into a prescriptive story of how everyone must be, even if that's what people in the ancient world assumed everyone would be, is reading into the Bible what isn't there, rather than reading out from the Bible what is there. I don't think that for one moment the writers of Genesis thought that they were saying anything at all about same-sex relationships. Traditionalists uh, also say in that same context that Jesus was endorsing opposite-sex relationships when he talked about Adam and Eve in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. But all he was talking about then was divorce. And then finally, some may point to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Not least because that's how the word sodomite got into the English language. And then there's also a similar account in Judges 19. But both of them are to do with gang rape and murder. So no serious biblical scholar thinks that they have any relevance to our particular question. Interestingly, the Bible never speaks of the sin of Sodom in terms of homosexuality. 
If you want to know what it does say about it, then have a look at Ezekiel 16:49. Okay, are you with me so far? Okay, so there are five verses, five texts uh, that are generally taken to be what the Bible says about homosexuality, the famous five. Let's just uh, quickly read them and then we'll talk today about the Old Testament verses. Then I'll leave you with a couple of thoughts to mull over and then we'll have a look at the New Testament verses more next week. So from Leviticus, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. And if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they should be put to death. Now, notice, if you will, that both these verses are directed at men. Ask me tonight as to why that is. There are no Old Testament verses that speak about female-female same-sex relationships. Moving on to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6. Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals. 1 Timothy 1, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. For the sexually immoral, homosexuals, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now notice here the use of the word homosexual in each case, and I will come back to that in a moment. And then there's the one that we'll spend most time on next week in Romans 1. For this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 26 here is the only verse in the New Testament that may have female same-sex behaviour in mind. But equally, it may not. All it actually says is that their women, which begs the question, whose women and which women, and they'll be important for next week, their women had exchanged things that Paul thought were natural in sexual behaviour for things he thought were unnatural and contrary to nature in sexual behaviour. And then next week, we'll also be looking at who the them are here. But I'd have to say, no wonder that traditionalists quote these verses to say that God doesn't approve of homosexuality. Just as many of them will quote 1 Corinthians 14 to say God doesn't approve of women in leadership. Because in both cases, what the Bible says seems clear enough, doesn't it? But we know that Actually, that's not enough. We also need to know what the Bible was saying. And to know that, we need to ask some questions. What was the context? What was it saying to its original audience? What was it talking about then, and why? Because only when we know that can we know whether what the Bible said then is saying the same thing about the same thing to us now. So we'll start with those two Old Testament commandments. But I don't want to spend too much time on them today because of another standard principle of 
biblical interpretation, which is that no Old Testament commandment applies to us today, full stop, because they're all part of a covenant that doesn't apply to us. Jesus said we are under a new covenant. Hebrews 8.13 says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. The only exception to that principle is when a commandment is repeated in the New Testament, which neither of these two verses is. But despite that, if we're still worried that maybe these commandments do still apply today, then we will at least need to be consistent about it. The rabbis told us that there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. So we can't just take a view on those two. We have to decide which of the other 611 still apply as well. And if so, why they do. Bearing in mind that when we read through those commandments, they range from very sensible sounding ones to totally bizarre ones. So we really can't just pick and choose the ones that still sound good and ignore the ones that don't. Which is why biblical scholars say that only those commandments that are repeated in the New Testament are part of the new covenant. The word testament, of course, actually means covenant. And then one other thing that you may have been wondering about which is the strength of the language that is used in these two commandments, calling it an abomination. Now, the Hebrew word translated abomination is used 117 times. 111 of those times is talking about other things that are also an abomination, including taking advantage of the poor, not respecting the Sabbath, being arrogant and telling lies, and rabbits and shellfish. They're all abominations as well. Tell me that you'll never look at a prawn cocktail the same way again. (laughs) If the Easter Bunny was real, I think he'd be feeling very hurt right now. Now, it's true that in Leviticus 20, the death penalty is prescribed. But that was true of many other things as well like blaspheming, sacrificing to other gods, disobeying your parents, and getting your prophecies wrong. Charismatics, watch out if that one still applies. So neither the strength of the language nor the severity of the penalty is telling us anything unique about these two verses. So I want to leave you uh, with a couple of thoughts just to set the scene for next week starting with a quote from a well-known conservative evangelical scholar, one who is very much against same-sex relationships. You may find it shocking, he says, but most scholars who've written books about homosexuality in the last 40 years have concluded that the Bible does not condemn consensual monogamous same-sex relations. Interesting. So why have those scholars come to that conclusion in spite of what the Bible says. There are two main reasons for that and the first is our old friend context. Almost without exception the same sex behavior in the ancient world that the Bible so strongly condemns was not 
talking about relationships as we know them today. Context-wise, it was invariably abusive. Often where there was a whole load of other despicable stuff going on at the same time. Men with power taking advantage of people who had no power, such as slaves and prostitutes and young boys. In that culture, slaves were freely available to their masters for sexual use, male and female, because they were property, not people. In Greco-Roman society, older men would have so-called mentoring relationships with young boys in which they were free to sexually abuse them as part of the deal. It was seen as part of growing up. We'll make a man of you. That was called pederasty. We would call it paedophilia. A central feature of Greco-Roman culture was dinner parties hosted in pagan temples. The RSVP invitations were sent out in the name of the pagan gods. They started with sacrifices to those gods, followed by overindulgence of food and alcohol, and they ended in sexual orgies as the after-dinner entertainment, again involving the sexual use of slaves and male and female prostitutes and wife-swapping, consensual or otherwise. The Latin word for these depraved dinner parties was the convivium, from which we unfortunately get our word convivial. At least six of the nine behaviours that Paul condemns in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, and verse 6 is one of those famous five verses we looked at a moment ago, at least six of the nine behaviours were things that happened at the convivium. Greed, drunkenness, idolatry, sexual immorality, adultery, and men having sex with men. It's very likely that this is what Peter was talking about as well in 1 Peter 4.3 when he said, You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. All of the early churches that Paul and Peter were writing to were in cities that were part of the Roman Empire. Most of the early Christians in those churches were Gentile former pagans, a small minority community living with that culture all around them. As Peter said, people who used to do that kind of thing themselves, who didn't have a background in good Jewish morality. And we can easily imagine for ourselves the peer pressure there to be like everyone else that the biblical writers were worried about. Now, with a convivium sacrifice, there was lots of meat to be eaten. So wealthy patrons would invite their friends and neighbours for a, a big party. And meat was very expensive, it was a luxury so you would be minded to go. And the apostles are saying to these former pagans who are now following Jesus, you need to turn down those invitations. You need to be different to the world around you. Which meant having nothing to do with the places and the events where these things happened. 
The early Christian concern that we see in the New Testament about meat offered to idols was not about what was on the menu, but what went on at the venue. And then the second and most important reason for why biblical scholars are now saying it is this. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek with a bit of Aramaic. But none of these languages had a word for homosexual. In fact, no ancient language did, including Latin. The word didn't exist until the late 19th century. And the reason that the word didn't exist is because the human characteristic that that word is describing wasn't known about until then. You see, homosexuality is not same-sex behaviour. It's same-sex orientation. Homosexual orientation is being sexually attracted to people of the same sex by nature as your natural state, just as heterosexual orientation, which is another new word, is being sexually attracted to people of the opposite sex by nature as your natural state. The biblical writers obviously knew about same-sex behaviour, but they didn't know about same-sex orientation because nobody did until the late 19th century. For the whole of human history until then, everyone was assumed and presumed to be opposite-sex attracted as their natural state, which of course includes the entire period of the Bible. People thought that that was obvious. And that is why most biblical scholars are now saying that the Bible does not condemn consensual, monogamous, formally committed same-sex relationships. Now, since the biblical writers thought that everyone was, by nature, opposite sex attracted, it's obvious why they would think that same-sex behaviour was unnatural. It's also obvious that they would never conceive of a world in which same-sex relationships were necessary. The question would never arise. There would be no need to make space for those relationships in the family of God's people. Why would there be? And this lack of awareness is why we don't see the word homosexual used in any Bible translation before the RSV in 1946. Not the King James, not the Wycliffe Bible, or Martin Luther's Bible, or the Geneva Bible, which is the one that John Calvin used, and not even the Fundamentalist Bible of John Nelson Darby. So when Bible translators today decide to use the word homosexual, like in the version that I read to you from earlier, they're actually being very naughty boys. Because they know, and I know, that nowhere is the Bible talking about homosexuality as we know and understand it today. In fact, the Bible is never talking about something that the biblical writers didn't know about. So in those modern translations where you see that word, we're not so much reading what the Bible was saying as what a publisher's ideology is saying. And on that bombshell, it's time to end. So next week we'll be 
looking to say more about the New Testament verses, and I'll explain why traditionalists are against gay relationships, what they think the Bible's good news is for people who are born gay. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.